Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome, Food and Faith Podcast. We are excited to be bringing you a series of four podcasts that were recorded at the Food and Faith Gathering held in November at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland. A little bit of the background of this event. Uh, for years, uh, the Keep and Till had hosted this event and called it Headwaters. Um, and this year, we're really excited to partner with the podcast um, to be bringing uh, these speakers and these ideas to a much larger audience. But we had started the we had, we had started this program saying, you know, for years I had had to get on get on a plane or get in a car to go engage with these ideas at various locations. And we said, well, wait a second, why can't we have these conversations here in our hometown? And so we're committed to local food, so we figured being committed to local learning made a lot of sense as well. And so we started this event, and we're really excited to be able to partner with the podcast to bring these events to you all today. And you might think like me, well, I don't live in Maryland, and it's not a local event for me. I was glad to get in my car and drive all day to get there. Um, but we are interested in the future in hosting local events in various parts of the country, partnering with different churches and organizations. So if that piques your interest, please feel free to reach out and we'll take that into consideration as we continue to develop both places for local conversations as well as national conversations. And so over the course of the next four podcasts, you're going to be hearing from some people that are familiar to you and some new faces as well. And so as part of this, we're going to be releasing podcasts from me, Heber Brown, Dave Baldwin, and Karen Mann. And today our guest is someone that you will know his voice well. It is my good friend and co-host, Reverend Sam Chamlin. Sam is the founder of the Keep and Tell and is a leading voice in this conversation of how do we bring together the church and the farm, food and faith, agriculture and theology. He's speaking to us today from the barn where he holds worship at the Keep and Tell. And so you may hear in the background, maybe not the sounds of animals, though they were out and about, but the sounds of people. Um, you might hear some of the the doves or some kind of bird that was up in the rafters. Um, and you will have a sense that we were all very chilly as this talk was going on. You may hear him hurrying up because we were cold, but we were listening to his words um, in that very setting of, of a barn and a farm. And I think this is one of the gifts that Sam brings to our conversation is how he is embedded both in theology and in the work of agriculture. So enjoy hearing what Sam has to say. Well, I want to start my talk this afternoon, make sure I'm recording. Yeah, I'm good. About why I do the podcast. Like why, because I pastor two churches, I have three children, I have a lovely wife, Jenny, okay, I have, I coach two baseball teams, I have plenty to do. The last thing I need is podcasts when Sometimes I can be rather introverted, and so talking to other people can be a real struggle for me. Talking to other people through a computer is even worse. Um, and then doing the work of editing when you have to hear your own voice, that is, absolute, that is just torture. Like, there's a little circle of hell that is just your own voice being played back to you on and on and on. But I do the pod because my vocational call is to be a pastor. And I think in the environmental and agricultural crises that we face, we need our pastors to be pastors 
We need our pastors to be good pastors. Like, not just how to get people into heaven. We need our pastors to show up in our communities. And so I'm on this lifelong journey that I didn't choose for myself, but I'm on this lifelong journey to figure out how to be a good pastor in the midst of a climate crisis. Because it's happening. I mean, we, one summer, we, even here in the Mid-Atlantic, we get a ton of rain, the next summer we get none, and this causes crises for our people, and crises are full of spiritual weight, and we need our pastors to show up in these crises for our people. And so I like talking to people who are doing that work, and I get a chance to sit at your feet. Like, when we interview you, it's because I get a chance to sit at your feet, and you entertain my questions, and I really appreciate that. But I'm also, I also do the podcast because I want to be a good believer at the end of the day. Like, I want to be a good Christian, and that's, that's my tradition. And so it, if you're Jewish, go be a good Jew. If you're a Muslim, go be a good Muslim. But for me, I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a good believer. And, and when I get to do the pod, I get challenged regularly as to what it means to be a good disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm regularly reminded of all that I am not yet, and it's okay that I'm not yet, but it's also a challenge to say, hey, God still has something for me to do. Just because I've achieved this rank of pastor doesn't mean I have it all figured out. I just want to be a good believer. And generally, the food and faith community has given me the best and fullest expression of what it means to be a good believer. To me. I went back and listened to a pod this week. Um, our mentor, Anna and I, one of our mentors, Fred Bonson, the one we did uh, down at his event. Um, and Fred said it so eloquently. He said that we are all yearning for, the whole, for wholeness for places and for people. And he says we need a fundamental reshaping of the way that we do life. And this was said in conversation, but this reads like a creed to me. That I've done church for a long time, and I don't... I, I don't I hope this doesn't come out wrong. I'm cut edit this out of the pod. Like, I don't really need more Bible at the end of the day. I need the Bible, but I'm not sure that I need more. And I need prayer, but I'm not sure that I need more. What I need more, what I need more of is wholeness. And I need a, a faith that makes a difference in my actual community. And we need a fundamental reshaping of the way that we do life. That's what Fred said, and that's what I believe. We have got to reimagine what it means. And I'll be honest with you, the church has not always delivered on this promise. We have promised it, but we haven't often delivered it. But I still believe the church can deliver on this. That the church is still a place to rediscover a fundamental wholeness. But this lack of wholeness is not just taking its toll on the environment. It's taking a toll on those of us who are invested in this work, who are invested in a, way, a better way of being. We are constantly torn apart, asked to go in multiple different directions. I mean, goodness gracious, if I hear one more person say my work life versus my home life versus my prayer life versus my whatever life, as if we could box ourselves up into different little, different little pieces. We are constantly being torn apart, and what we yearn for is wholeness. And to the people in this room who are engaged in this work, I want to acknowledge that you have a unique challenge and that we are constantly being pulled apart and that we yearn for wholeness and the church can deliver on that I believe to be an activist is stressful and difficult I remember on the pod also that same event that we did down at Wake uh, Gary Paul Nabhan who if you haven't listened to Gary's this is another plug for the pod if you haven't listened to Gary's pod you need to Gary is one of our foremost um, thinkers around ecology um, in the country, I would say in the world. He's a MacArthur genius. He's smarter than me, at least. So go listen to him. But he talks about how he's trying to be an activist in the world. And he said that this activism just kind of burned him out. 
that he became weary and cynical in the work of trying to bring about a more just, generative and, a more just generous and regenerative world. How is it that we who are engaged in trying to make the world a better place are being torn apart as we do the work? Brothers and sisters, that makes no sense. And it's not just in religious communities. It's wherever we do this, whether it's academia, whether it's in our own homes, whether it's you and your goats and your pigs in your backyard. This work can tear us apart at times. It is hard work. And if I can't be whole, then how in the world can I proclaim a whole world? And so that's part of the reason I do the pod, is because I want to figure out what it means to be whole. And the only way for me to figure that out is to do it with you all. It's to hang out with you all, even if it is through a computer screen, which is super obnoxious. Even that is a blessing. We get to learn this work together. And I feel this tension between the hyperactivity, leaning on this notion of activists, this hyperactivity that we're all vocationally called to, but then also on this other side, as we're buzzing around doing all of our work, there's also this thing that keeps coming back to my mind, and, this, and it's this scripture passage that gets abused to no end. But it's still when Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have life more abundant. Like, I still believe in those words of Jesus. That Jesus says, when you enter into the way of life that I'm calling you to, life is better. We can argue about what better means, but I'm convinced that it means better. And it means more abundant. It means more of life, which means more of all the pieces of life. And so as I'm running around and around and around, Jesus is like, I'm still calling you to this just better way of being. But if we imagine a prayer life, you know, this abundant life, just peace with God, alongside of my activist life. So I'm doing all this work on one hand, and then I go to my quiet prayer closet, and I just pray, and I'm with God, and all that kind of stuff. Then we're bound to make the same mistake, this compartmentalization, this being torn apart that Fred Bonson and Gary Paul Nabhan are properly critical of. We can't divide our work into the work that we do and the time that we spend with God. And certainly, this way of thinking is not only constant for all of us. We all breathe that energy. But it can be defining for us, suggesting that we, people in congregations alike, are still breathing in this toxic air of a disembodied faith. You and I, regardless of what religious tradition we're in, we're, so we've all breathed this energy in because we believe in this spirituality that says one day we'll leave the body and we'll go to be to heaven and we want to be with Jesus and all that's great, but it's fundamentally this disconnection and so then we allow all the pieces of our life to disconnect. And brothers and sisters, as activists who are in this work, if we allow our lives to disconnect in that way, we're in trouble. Kids, I'd say something stronger, but we have kids in the room today. But I felt called when I talked to Fred and to Gary because they, uh, they constantly advocated coming back to a life of contemplation. Fred and Gary, if you hear them talk, they're just like, yeah. Fred's like, Fred is notoriously hard to nail down because all he wants to do is go pray. He's just a super quiet guy. And Gary has the same soft gentleness of spirit. And what I see in those two gentlemen and so many people that we've, talk to. I only bring their names up because you can go listen to the pod and you can hear exactly what they said. But in both of them, I just hear this wholeness of their life, a deep contemplation that plays itself out in work that really makes a difference in the world. And I'm like, that's the kind of person that I want to be. And so after I got back from Wake and I heard this call from Fred and from Gary to be more contemplative, to live a more holistic life, 
I do what I always do, which is when I'm struggling, when I'm off kilter, when I'm just not right in my spirit, I go back and I play the hits. This means that when I'm down, I dive back into mid-90s grunge rock. All right, so after I got back from there, there's a lot of Nirvana and Soundgarden. Judge away, all right? It also means that I put my hockey skates back on. That's usually good for my mental state. There's nothing like crushing somebody in the corner to just help you feel closer to God. <laughs> and I also go back to Wendell Berry. Wendell, I don't think, has crushed anybody in his life. but <laughs> Certainly not a hockey player. But I go back and I just reread Wendell Berry, and that's what I did. And I stumbled back across his book, Home Economics, which everybody's probably got a favorite Wendell Berry book. That's probably mine. I'm not even sure that it's his best, but it's the one that continues to speak to me. And I went back through, and I'm just paging through, and I stumbled back across an essay that I had read, and I had underlined, you know, all that. And it's this essay entitled Preserving Wildness. Does this ring a bell for anybody? I'm just curious. All right, we got one. Okay, good. So you can go read the essay. Preserving Wildness. And as I'm wrestling with this dichotomy of what it means to be an activist and what God is calling to me, calling me to be, to be as a whole person, as I'm wrestling with this dichotomy, I stumble across this essay, and Barry is not writing about spirituality, but he too is dealing with the dichotomy in this essay. He says, on the one hand, we've got environmentalists. He says, and on the other hand, we have conventional agriculture, what he calls, quote-unquote, nature conquerors, on the other and what he's saying is that this argument, and we've all been a part of this argument, like you didn't end up in this room without understanding that environment, environment and ag are, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. We put it on Facebook, it's complicated would be the way that we would illustrate it. But environmentalists want to save the world, I hear that all the time, and they're right. And on the other hand, ag wants to feed the world. And so often those of us who are in the middle are asked to choose which side do we believe in, which side seems more important to us. Now, a long story short, Barry boils down his position to something in the middle. And, what there, and that in the middle, between ag and between environment, he says that there is a wildness and a domesticity, both, that are essential to our humanity. A wildness and a domesticity. We are a part of nature, but he also makes the argument that we also stand over and against nature in some way. There is something unique to the human experience over and against what we experience in the beauty of creation. And so Barry reminds us that you and I, brothers and sisters, are fundamentally wild. That there is a wildness to our experience. I mean, just think about it. From the day that you were conceived, your DNA configured in ways that nobody could have, could have predicted that it is wild and it is unpredictable. Sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's complicated, but we are wild in the very structure that makes us us. He says we also rely on uncontrolled wild processes. Just like your heart beating right now, none of you are making yourselves do that. The, lung, the air coming in and out of your lungs is just happening because it happens. I mean, even all the way down to your blood vessels right now, there is oxygen going out of your arteries and into your cells, and there's carbon dioxide coming out of your cells and into your veins because that's how you're designed. There's a wildness. There's a freedom to our body. A million things are happening right now that we have no control over. But he says we're also domestic. He talks about that we literally, as we age and as we, as we think about life, we literally make a living. That life is not just kind of handed to us. We shape that life. We 
choose occupations, we choose relationships, we choose partners, we raise children, we make a life. There is a way in which we shape the life that happens to us in ways that other creatures don't. We discipline our attitudes and our appetites in such a way that we create a life that seems of value to us and a life that is worth living. So to be fully human, Barry argues, is to embrace wild, both wildness and domesticity. He writes this. says, the good worker loves the board before it becomes a table. And the good worker loves the tree before it yields the board and loves the forest before it gives up the tree. The good worker understands that a badly made artifact is both an insult to its user and a danger to its source. He says, we could say then that good forestry begins with, re with the respectful husbanding of the forest that we call stewardship and ends with well-made tables and chairs and houses. Just as good agriculture begins with stewardship of the fields and ends in good meals. In other words, conservation is going to prove increasingly futile and increasingly meaningless if its prescriptions are not answered positively by an economy that rewards and enforces good use. He's such a writer. But what he's saying is that in order for us to have good things, to make a living that is good, we have to embrace a wildness and respect that wildness. And he says that all of our conservation efforts, our desire to save the environment, our desire to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, etc., etc., are going to be futile and meaningless if we are not insistent that we're trying to make a good life out of the world that we find ourselves in. Now, as I'm reading all this, I'm reading it through the two lenses which God has given me and I can't get away from. I'm reading it through the joint lens of farmer and pastor. As a farmer, as someone who appreciates good food and good things, and who appreciates the, the goodness of things that are handed down to us. I mean, for instance, I was just gifted a hoe from my grandmother that was blacksmithed by hand for my great-great-grandfather Amos. And that thing is as the most, world's most perfect hoe. The weight on that thing is just gorgeous. All right, as somebody who appreciates that and who understands that, I hear what Barry is saying. To have good, to make a good living depends on paying good attention to the wildness of the world. I was blessed to grow up on a farm where we understood that good milk doesn't start in the parlor. Good milk starts on good soil and good grass and, yes, happy cows. Even happy cows kick at you every once in a while, but they're, they're generally happy. And we as a society have not given sufficient thought and practice to this fundamental intersection of how wildness and domesticity actually connect with one another and how both are needed to make a whole human. But I'm also hearing what Barry is saying in this exchange as a pastor. And when Barry talks about wildness, and this is when like, my brain just about fell out of my head. When he talks about wildness, what I heard him say was the wildness of God. I hear, I heard in this word, a God who brings, from the very first pages of scripture, who brings nature out of chaos who is just throwing stuff up in the air and stuff is happening and he's moving all these pieces around and it is awesome, but it is wild and it is crazy. I hear God who does the most unexpected things, for instance, like cut Samson's hair and all of a sudden you can't do anything, or God who fed Elijah with birds. I hear the wildness and this wildness of God. 
God is unbelievably and undeniably wild. And I hear this wildness play out in the lives of our great contemplatives. You ever read some of, the, some of our great contemplative people? I mean, even just the most basic text on St. Francis. Francis is a weird dude. <laughs> right? Francis has got some, like, there's the whole story where, like, he's standing before his dad, and his dad's really mad that he's not going to take over the family business. And, and he's like, you're going to, his dad's yelling and screaming at him. He's like, fine, if all this belongs to you, literally in the town square, he strips naked and walks away. And I'm like, please don't do that tomorrow in the <laughs> church. Like, don't make that awkward for us. But the contemplatives are wild. But they describe contemplation as a total release to the presence of God, sitting simply in God's presence. The God who sometimes just sits with us and at other times throws us into wild, unpredictable, and sometimes unsafe ways of being for the sake of the good news. I hear a God who is reckless in God's love for you and for me. God, whose, whose love is completely and totally untamed. And whatever box you want to put God's love into, God has said, huh, that's cute. Let me blow that up a little bit more. I hear this wildness of God. In other words, I hear grace. The work of contemplation is, in so many ways, to acknowledge, observe, and orient ourselves to the wildness that God has put into us and the wildness of God's self. So when Barry says that we need wildness, what I hear as a pastor is we need contemplation. We need time and space to make sense of the God who is eminently more wild than you and I expected. And then when I hear domesticity, when I hear Barry talk about that too, what I hear is living into the wildness of God, into the discipline of discipleship. As Barry writes, taming our attitudes and our appetites for a well-lived life. I hear, take up your cross, do an activity, do a thing, and follow me. And when Barry says that these things are dependent on one another, that domesticity and discipleship flow from wildness and grace, I hear, oh my goodness, that's what we're about. Engaging the wildness of the places where we find ourselves Discovering God to be wild and God yet calling us into the natural rhythms of a life of discipleship. For those of us in land, food, and faith world, we don't have to look long to discover that yes, wildness and domesticity, contemplation and discipleship do indeed flow into, e flow into each other. A rich estuary of land and faith. Our very ministries and vocations are, yes, subject to the wildness of the world, a wildness made increasingly more complex by climate change, but is flowing into a taming of that wildness, of making a life out of the craziness of God, a funneling of that into a disciplined life of food and of community and of abundance. And Barry says, and he challenges us, he says, practicality needs to be made subject to spiritual values and spiritual measures. But we must not forget that it is also necessary for spirituality to be responsive to practical questions. For human beings, the spiritual and the practical are and should be inseparable. And I think what I heard as I read this, as I went back and played these hits, is that, felt, friends, if we are going to do this work, then the activity that we do, having a garden and having events and 
cooking stuff and all the stuff that we want to do has got to and will only survive if it is rooted in the wildness of God that we discover in contemplation. We have got to be contemplatives alongside of being activists. And that's the only way we'll make it without being torn apart. And the good news is that in the best of our tradition, at least the tradition, Christian tradition, activists and contemplative have always gone together. Almost every one of our great mystics are as identifiable by their landscape as by their contemplation and by the works that they put out as they sat at the foot of God. Think about this. Consider St. Antony, the great father of monasticism. Antony is this great guy. He's like, I'm going to go serve God. Well, we, when we think of St. Antony, we think of going to the desert. Which it means it comes as no surprise that somebody who's in a very ascetic environment would invite us to be more ascetic in the way that we think about faith. The landscape shaped his contemplation and shaped his teaching. Or consider Henry David Thoreau, whose residence at Walden Pond brought about this muddy mystery to his reflections. We see his location mirrored in his work. It comes right out. Think of Annie Dillard, the mystic alongside of Tinker Creek, whose slow and steady motion of Tinker Creek is mirrored in the slow and steady motion of her writings. One cannot think of the bountiful levity of St. Francis without also considering his relationship to the equally bounding and beautiful Italian countryside. Francis laughs all the time. It's almost as if we can hear the laughter of Italy through Francis's just freedom of expression. And one more for today. One cannot think of perhaps one of our own modern mystical activists, one Greta Thunberg, who sailed across the ocean to deliver a steady and magnificent message which felt like the ocean, that something must be done to preserve this planet. The ocean is big and it is simple. And Greta's message is, reflects that. It is big and it is simple. Y'all got to do something. Every one of our mystics their activity was rooted by their land and their presence in and on that land. The reason that they're such visionaries, the reason that they see and celebrate things that go unseen, the reason they challenge us in so many beautiful ways is because they were engaged in a life of contemplation, of thinking deeply about the wildness of God and then letting that be the basis for their activism. They have an imagination that was informed by their landscape and a, a, a way of being that's formed by a close relationship to their land. So Barry continues. He says, good workmanship. As we think about how do we do this, right, what does that mean for those of us who want to practice this? He says, good workmanship, that is careful, considerate, and loving work, requires us to think considerately of the whole process, natural or wild, and cultural or domestic. It says, if we're going to do good work, friends, we've got to think about both these ends. It can't be enough to just have a church. And it can't be enough to just sit in our prayer closets. We have to do both, and we have to figure out how those things are related. And if we're really thinking about making a serious contribution to this moment in the kairos of God, then we had better keep paying attention to the work that we do for contemplation and the work that we do in activism and make sure that they are deeply connected at their deepest root. We cannot simply advocate for discipleship. We cannot continue offering programming. We need to base it all in God's wildness, God's grace, God's nature, God's death, and even God's life. So Barry asks three basic questions of farmers. 
for those of us who are practitioners of wildness. In this essay, Barry has three questions. He says, number one, what is here? Number two, what will nature permit us to do here? And number three, what will nature help us do here? What is here? What will nature permit us to do here? And what will nature help us to do here? This is true for the very best of our farming practices. Start with what is, and then figure out what nature will assist you to do. It's also true for the way that we grow disciples and the way that we think about faith. What is here, and what will the wildness of God and the goodness of our people enable us to do? Isn't that what we heard with Heber? All of a sudden he discovers, oh shoot, there's all these people doing all this. Like, there's all these people with all these skills. Put them to use. What is here? And what will nature help us to do? And Barry argues, I say rather powerfully, that we cannot know what we are doing. We could start farm churches out the, out the you-know-what. We can church after church after church. We can do all of that. We cannot know what we are doing until we know what nature would be doing if we were doing nothing. Listen to that. He says, we cannot know what we are doing until we know what nature would be doing if we were doing nothing. This reminds me of my seminary professor who said, Sam, when you walk into a church, leave the plow in the barn for the first year. Just see what, just see what the ground wants to do all by itself. Any pastor who's walked into a committee meeting the first week and tried to tell them how to do it knows that this is, knows that this is gospel truth. And, he's, and then he says, just let nature do what it's going to do and learn from nature. Trust the wildness to lead you into a way of being, into a way of domesticity, a way of discipleship. And then Barry kind of goes one way and I'm going to go another way where he says, this is why we need small native wildernesses widely dispersed over the countryside as well as large ones in spectacular places. So what he's saying is that in order for us to model and to be prophetic about what wildness and domesticity looks like, he's like, we need small farms. And I'm starting to wonder if that's the argument we need to make for family farms. We keep making the economic argument and maybe we need to make the mystical one. That we need places that are going to connect and demonstrate a way of being that demonstrates that we are creatures in nature and also that we have some role to play. We are called to be stewards, which means we're allowed to, we're allowed to move it around, we're allowed to manipulate it, but, we're allowed to, but we must steward it. So he's saying farms are the best way to do that. How do we trust wildness and be people all at the same time? So he says we, should, we need small farms, and he says, yes, we also need larger places of grandeur. I mean, we need the Grand Canyon, and we need the Rockies, and we need the Appalachians, and we need Yosemite, and we need all those things. But the most important way we do this is by the work that we do on the ground inside of farms. He says what we need most are small oases where we prophetically pay attention to land, which is really paying attention to the Creator, and then responding. In other words, we pay attention to grace, and we act in kind. But the pastor in me says that that kind of a farm sounds an awful lot like the church that we need these days. We need a place where the wildness of contemplation, the unpredictability of God, the remarkable inclusivity of God's message of love and grace meets the, the domesticity and the regularity of discipleship. That's why we need stuff like what we're doing. This is not a commercial for k &T. This is an empowerment for you all. 
the work that we do around food and faith, whether it's in a kitchen or on a farm or around a dinner table, we need this because we need to find places. And for the church these days that seems obsessed with programming and seems to have ignored grace entirely, we need places where we just pay attention to the wild grace of God and live that out in our everyday lives. That's why we need you. That's why, you need, you, that's why your work is not just a good idea. It's not just a boutique. It's not something new or cool that might get quote-unquote young people. Heber shot that down. It's always the old people who jump in first. That's why we need you. Because the church has to be reimagined. The church needs to be reconnected to its land. And we need to reconnect deeply and profoundly to the grace of God that is seen in every plant and in every animal and in every chicken that runs through our lunchtime when we had no intention of that chicken being. That's God's wildness, and we need more. So do your work. <coughs> do it well. Whatever God's calling you to do, do it, not because we think it's a good idea, but because we need you. And so friends, in the end, not only you and me, as people, as people of faith committed to this earth, but all of us, if we're going to survive this work, we need to be contemplative. And we need communities that are contemplative as well. Shaped by the land, becoming imaginative because of their land, and who are acting in and on that land to become all that God has called us to be. Farm churches, wild churches, dinner churches, whatever else kind of churches. I said if farm church hadn't worked, I'd have probably started space church, because I think that would be fun. <laughs> Derek, Derek and I have already signed up to be chaplains in the, in the Space Force, so we're good. We're good. <laughs> Bring Jesus there, too. But whatever that is, we need you to be contemplative, quieting all of our raucous activity so that God can run wild, surprising us with who is invited, with the work we are called to do, with the mystery and beauty that is inherent in all of creation. And from that, and only from that, do your work. The disciplined work of caring for people and for the land. And when these two things are joined together, we'll find that our activism, which exhausts us right now, and it's okay to say it's exhausting, that exhausts us, that threatens to tear us apart, will actually be long-lasting and creative. And darn it, didn't we set out to do something sustainable? Our activism, our work, will be sustainable in the end. So brothers and sisters, don't burn yourselves out. We need you. Connect with the wildness of God and live into the goodness of God's discipleship. I'm going to say amen because I'm a preacher. So that's the amen. end. Amen. <laughs>
This is an opportunity for people from all different walks of life to come together and explore the intersection of theology and ecology of food and faith. The first two weeks residency for this new cohort at Memphis Theological Seminary takes place in June of 2020, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, you can visit memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. That's memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. Yet another place to go and engage in the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.